Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm your host, and I'm so glad you decided to join us today for this program. I have an amazing guest today. Originally from Australia, Dr. Phil Doc, as he's called. McQuee is a licensed mental health professional with a unique set of skills. Doc is a highly experienced a communicator who specializes in training law enforcement and military personnel. Part of his passion to work with sheepdogs come from his own background in the military, law enforcement, and private security contracting professionals. In addition to holding a master's degree in counseling and a doctor of psychology, he is a law enforcement firearms instructor certified in high-risk global protective operations and a trained hostage crisis negotiator. Doc, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. Glad to be with you, Conrad. So tell me a little bit about how you got started working with first responders in, a, in the mental health field. Um, so have a have a background, as, as you just shared, um, within uh, part of my previous experiences working in law enforcement and uh, the military as well. I was an infantry and then with a tactical PSYOP unit for a while too. And um, that afforded me the privilege of being able to get my U.S. citizenship. And uh, it was a real privilege for to be able to serve and to give back to a country that's given me so much since moving here as an immigrant uh, in 1999. Um, and as I pushed into the mental health field, um, it was just a natural gravitation towards working with law enforcement and military simply because, you know, I understood that mindset and um, the hurt that, that's involved and the trauma that's experienced within these professions. And so, um, I think there's nothing more uh, fulfilling in life than being able to serve others and give back. And so this is a way in which um, I've had the privilege of being able to serve and give back uh, to my you know, fellow brothers and sisters in, in arms and then also uh, on the street with law enforcement. So what have you seen over the past uh, the years that you've been involved with this? How, has there been any kind of changes? What's What's been the What's been the trajectory of mental health and wellness in our in our first responders? Unfortunately, despite um, so much attention to the issues that are going on in law enforcement and mil- in the military, uh, with and all first responders, right? Of course, not just law enforcement. Um, but uh, the last few years, we've all seen it. I mean, it doesn't take rocket science or mm. or a degree in this stuff to figure out. You know, there's a serious issue going on. Um, the public perception, the the safety for officers and first responders, um, it's it's becoming a dangerous, a, a more dangerous world out there for them. And so there's there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of stress, uh, there's a lot of pressure. And um, now, especially with social media and the ability for everyone to turn a camera on at uh, usually an edited point in time in a lot a lot of the cases. Um, within situations and circumstances, they get videoed, and so officers are getting sued. And and for what what an officer gets paid in order to risk their life, that's 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 tough stuff. And so, um, it really is, um, you know, a self sacrificing profession to be a first responder in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, in the last few years has definitely been a shift, a pivot. Uh, in the direction that that is unhealthy, simply because of the pressures and the stresses that all of our first responders are facing these days. Mm-hmm. So you've worked with both first responders as well as military. Mm-hmm. What are the similarities? What are the differences in the trauma that these folks face? 
Um, well, interestingly, I find a, a, a great deal of similarity in the way in which uh, first responders and military personnel um, function in regards to their temperament and uh, personalities and um, mindset. And so they're very similar. They draw a very similar type, very similar archetype. Um, and, you know, the, the warrior, uh, the, the sheepdog, as um, Colonel um, um, Dave Grossman. Uh, great Grossman, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talks about, um, mm -hmm. I think he, he coined that term, I believe. Um, that mindset, the protective mindset and the mentality uh, and serving. And so um, there's, a, there's a lot of great similarities between the military and law enforcement. And in regards to trauma as well, of course, military, we, we know what they're experiencing mm -hmm. simply with the ongoing wars that have taken place over the last 20 years uh, within the U.S. But then also um, within law enforcement, um, I find in a way their, their trauma is even further acute from the perspective of uh, with the military, you know, we, we've got set times of deployment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you might be on a deployment, and special operations tend to have a lot shorter deployments mm -hmm. um, than do conventional military units. But um, regardless, you know, there's a time period where you're out of country or out of the green, green zone um, uh, where, where your life is at risk. And then you're back home and training and preparing again to deploy. Whereas law enforcement, it's 24-7. It's, mm. it's the job. You never know what is going to happen. Uh, you never know what that next call is going to be. And so there's a propensity within law enforcement to, to, to have a higher level of stress just from the perspective of they're always on guard. They always have to be ready. They never know what's coming next. A traffic stop could be the most dangerous or fatal thing that they experience. And, and um, so things that seem like menial tasks are not necessarily that way. It could be life-altering or, or, you know, traumatic incidences as a result of just um, performing their job, which they do as a nine-to-five or if they're shift work, you know, um, seven-to-seven, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, 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 a, it's, a rough, uh, it's a rough deal for law enforcement from that perspective because, mm -hmm. um you know, their levels and exposure to trauma are in a way so much higher than even the military. Hmm. In your practice, what have you, what's been the more typical treatment that you've, or, or uh, should I say symptoms that you've treated? What What are some of those things that really kind of, kind of rise to the surface? So within um, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, um, and this is what you're focusing on mm -hmm. uh, with this documentary, which is fantastic, by the way. Thank you so much mm, thank for you. what you're doing and bringing attention to this. This is huge. Of course. Um, but some of the big issues, are the, the hypervigilance is probably one of the biggest mm. in regards to an inability to be able to settle oneself down. So within the brain, the amygdala within the brain is the area of the brain um, that is, that is um, hyperactive in a way uh, when it comes to PTSD because that is the, the center where uh, the fight, flight, or flee comes from, mm -hmm. and that is overstimulated due to the constant exposure often uh, within law enforcement and within first responders. Um, and so that creates a hypervigilance because it's constantly pushing out to the body, both physiologically and also cognitively. It's pushing out to the body, hey, there's an issue, there's a problem, be alert, look out. And so it's difficult to be able to function correctly, even to do your job, because if there's a that hyper level of arousal within the amygdala, it creates 
tension and, and stress um, on top of the stress that's already there within the profession. And so seeing a lot of that, um, probably one of the biggest byproducts or consequences of um, stress and within PTSD is a, a lack of being able to sleep. Mm. So insomnia is a massive issue. And um, that overstimulation also pushes into the inability for um, someone who's suffering from PTSD or, or post-traumatic stress to be able to push into the deeper REM cycles of sleep where the body needs and the mind needs in order to be able to, to defrag and, um, you know, get things back into a healthy manner. And so um, there's some of the biggest issues I see folks coming in with or in relationship um, often um, high levels of stress um, show themselves in, in the functionality of, of marriages and um, personal, interpersonal relationships, as well as work-related issues in regards to relationships. Sometimes, you know, the, the chief or the sheriff or the head of a department will say, hey, you need, you need to go get help. You've got some anger issues or you've got some communication issues. And a lot of the time it, it stems from um, what they're experiencing on the job. It stems from mm -hmm. the post-traumatic stress that um, officers and first responders are facing. Mm -hmm. Does the lack of sleep then create kind of a cycle of just kind of, kind of ratcheting up the the trauma, the 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 results of the trauma? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and it, it it's self perpetuating and it gets mm -hmm. worse and worse. And uh, what I find is then an, another major issue that comes into play. Once again, this isn't rocket science. What we're talking about here, it's pretty evident and pretty obvious. Uh, especially for those who are in uh, first responding professions and the members of their families uh, know the results of what's what I'm talking about here with the stress. Um, one of the biggest things that we do see, unfortunately, is um, turning to vices that can help put mm -hmm. one to sleep. And, mm -hmm. and the most common is alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look at other forms of drugs, um, illegal substances and whatnot that might be able to help or legal prescription medications mm -hmm. that might be able to help, often an abuse of those drugs will come up if there's a, a drug test done. Um, and of course, within law enforcement, you know, that's what you're primarily fighting a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, partaking in any substances that might be illegal is, is not good for your profession, uh, <laughs> professional ability to continue working. Sure. Um, but then also alcohol is readily available and socially acceptable. Yeah. And often in first responder uh, professions, um, it's it becomes part of the culture of mm -hmm. coping of, oh, man, you had a rough day. Come on, let's when the shift ends, let's go grab some beers or, hey, I've got a bottle of whiskey in my drawer. Let's let's take care of that. You know, once we get done for the day and um, that camaraderie that takes place, which is good in regards to being able to de-stress and, and de defragmentize um, what's taken place for the day uh, within the, um, the brotherhood or the sisterhood of, you know, fellow professionals. Um, when the alcohol is involved, it can often elevate to the point where, you know, once the officer gets home, they're drinking on their own, they're trying to get to sleep, can't get to sleep, so they'll start drinking some more. And then that creates another whole issue um, just just from originally often trying to get to sleep. And mm -hmm. so 
the alcohol actually also is an inhibitor, um, as are um, various different uh, psychotropic medications, which get prescribed to first responders who are suffering from PTSD often, mm-hmm. um, end up inhibiting the ability for the, for the mind and the, the brain to be able to push into uh, the REM cycles of sleep, which is required once again to be able to defrag and um, bring someone's back into a homeostatic state within their mind and within their body. Mm-hmm. I know in your work, you really like to focus on what you call left of bang. Mm. Can you describe what that is? Uh, what, you know, what bang is and left and right? What, what are, what, what is that? What, what are those terms mean? Sure. Um, that's a, it's a borrowed from a military term. Um, so bang would be a critical incident, a critical mm-hmm. event. Um, that might be, um, Exchanging of fire uh, or contact uh, with the enemy um, could be literally a bang with, you know, a roadside bomb or whatnot, IED. Um, so whatever that event might be, uh, a critical incident that might become a traumatic event, which we can talk about in a moment. But a, a critical incident is what we'd call a bang. And so often what What's happening now in law enforcement and military and first first responders um, is we're focusing on, which is fantastic. This is good. It's not a criticism, um, but focusing on the right of bang. So post an event happening, post a critical incident, post a traumatic event, uh, we're bringing in you know uh, peer-to-peer support, which is needed. Um, bringing in um, critical incident response teams, once again needed. Um, bringing in um, debriefing teams. Once again, this is important and needed to help officers and to help those in the first responding professions process what they've gone through with a critical incident or traumatic event. Um, This is great, but the problem is, is that there's not enough training on the front side of critical incidences and traumatic events. Um, And so what I do is, is we call it left of bang so often officer resiliency training is is right of bang like after an event you know they'll go through and and help process to to try to minimize the effects of post-traumatic stress uh, which which may or may not turn into ptsd Um, and so these are these are great programs that are doing incredible things nationwide and they are helping but what if we can what if we can preemptively strike ahead of traumatic events? What if we can get on the front end and give officers tools with which they can combat within themselves uh, the traumatic stress that they're facing um, before the events are taking place? And so I'm talking about getting in with agencies on the front end when, when, when new officers, when new special agents are coming in, um, in their academies, training more specifically and more intentionally with helping deal with the traumatic stress that is inevitable in the professions because um, it's, you know, there's one statistic in, in some of my research I came across was an average law enforcement professional within their career will experience 188 traumatic events or critical wow. incidences mm-hmm. within their profession. And that's, that's pretty rough. That's crazy. It yeah. is crazy. And, and that was just amongst law enforcement. You think about firefighters and, and uh, paramedics. Every call for a firefighter or paramedic um, is dealing with with major trauma. It's not necessarily just a cat up the tree. 
or within law enforcement, you know, sometimes it might be responding to a broken down vehicle on the side of the road. Um, but often with uh, firefighters, they experience even higher level of, of trauma and critical incidences than law enforcement do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, being able to get on the front end uh, to help prepare, we, we train physically, we train our agents, we train our officers, we train our soldiers, we train them to be physical and, and to be able to handle the physical stresses of their job. We train them uh, to be able to handle their legal aspects of their job. Um, we train them to be tactically sound in their operations on how they function to keep themselves and their partners and the communities safe. Um, but there is nowhere near enough training on the most important factor, which is the number one killer within mm -hmm. first responders, which is stress-related incidences in regards to, um, you know, you look at um, the FBI put out a stat on, and I remember you and I had talked about this previously, you know, when, mm -hmm. we, when we first spoke, on um, the FBI's um, statistic on the age of death for law enforcement officers is around 62 Mm -hmm. um, the uh, U.S. Marshals, the statistic they came out with is at 57. Wow. The national average age of death mm -hmm. for law enforcement officers, which is some 20 years less mm -hmm. than a civilian, which is around 77 on the national average. Right. Um, and so just signing up for one of these first responder jobs is automatically statistically taking 20 years off your life. Mm. And, and the causes of death primarily, overwhelmingly are preventable causes. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the unnecessary um, aspects of, of what's taking place within the first responder community um, that really does create a 911 issue, right? Right. Um, these unnecessary causes of death, primarily due to heart disease, heart attack, um, all of these things that can be prevented. And where is the heart attack and the heart disease coming from? Well, primarily it's coming from stress. Mm. It's coming from untreated traumatic stress that is creating injuries, that's creating disorders within our first responder community that's costing lives, that's taking 20 years off the mm. average first responder's life. That's wow. unacceptable. That's crazy. Right? I just did a, did a quick calculation. If you work for 30 years and you average 188 critical incidents like this, you're averaging about one every two months. Okay. So wow. now that's if you're working for 30 years. Right. So... Let's say, um, I can't remember off the top of my head the average um, time in uh, profession for law enforcement, let's say, but, but for those that work 10 years or 15 years, because the burnout rate is so high. Yeah. With first responders, they, most don't make it 30 years. Right. So you think about that from a statistical average at 188. If that's mm. 10 years, how much greater? That's triple. That's, yeah, that's 18 a year. That, yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's, yeah, that and so and, and not only that, but then you're adding, you know, those are the critical incidents. Those are those incidents that are really up there. Now you're adding the day-to-day -day incidents and the stress of the job. Maybe it's even the stress of management that isn't behaving the way they need to behave, you know. And so, and then you have the environmental stress of what's going on in the world and the, the other things like that, that add on top of that. So not only have these specific incidents that are critical, that are high level stress, high, you know, but then you have those day to day things that add on to that. And so yeah. it's no wonder, it's no wonder their lives are cut short by 20 years. Well, and you know, that one of the first questions you asked in regards, you know, what am I seeing in regards to trends 
uh, within law enforcement and first responder communities. Um, yeah, you think about just even with everything that we face now, uh, when you look at it even from a civilian perspective on the trauma and the stress that's involved with coronavirus mm -hmm. and uh, the last couple of years of having to deal with that, I mean, it's created worldwide sure. uh, stress yep. and, and, and let alone having to have a profession which, you know, with law enforcement is statistically, um, you know, the highest rate of uh, one of the highest rates of suicide mm -hmm. um, within a profession. Um so you you add all of the stresses on top of that, and it's it's no wonder why the tragedy that we see and we experience within first responders um, absolutely unnecessarily and tragically taking their lives mm -hmm. with law, so you, uh, law enforcement and military. You talked about about these, this training needs to be in the academy. We, as we know, we haven't seen a whole lot of that of in depth training for first responders across the board. There are, you know, small segments where there are they are doing more of that. What needs to happen in the at the academy level so that these new recruits can be resilient enough, you know, left of bang to to get through, you know, and to survive uh, in a healthy way. Well, it starts at the top. It starts at the top and it, and it trickles down from the top. It starts with our leadership. It starts with our chiefs. It starts with our boards. It starts with. Um, fostering um, a mentality uh, of, of mental wellness um, within our leadership, within law enforcement, within um, fire departments, within paramedics, within, within all for, you know, first responding professions. Um, from there, the trickle-down effect takes place. If it's understood that it is, it is not just acceptable but expected for officers, for agents um, to take care of themselves and their mental health, um, then that's that's where the change can take place within um, academies um, and and trainees um, conversations to be consistently had and and the thing is it's not just like doing blocks of well for the next three days we're going to talk about mental health it's implementing that in all aspects of the training mm. of recognizing hey you know what we find that you know within our profession when when we go to calls like this this tends to create a lot of stress for the officer. And, and being able to implement within all the different aspects of training, even from a tactical perspective, like the ability to be able to implement um, some of the, the pre-resiliency training that I do in uh, helping from a tactician's perspective of being able to have more control over the way in which one functions and operates under stress. Mm -hmm. And so some of these aspects are taught, um, but on a greater level to recognize and realize that um, being able to take care of ourself and our mind, um, not just our body and 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 our, you know, training in regards to tactics and and the law, let's say, but being able to have that aspect of knowing and understanding that all of these different different areas of study uh, are permeated uh, and in and, and really underlying these uh, these areas of instruction uh, with with the mental health aspects of things. And then also we need to be careful about how we how we word things because mm. the word mentals, the words mental health have a stigma to them. Sure. And like I was saying earlier, starting with the leadership is where the, the stigma has to get reversed. And mm -hmm. it is happening. Man, some of the departments that I've worked with and some of the agencies I've worked with are doing an incredible job of uh of, of normalizing this from the top down. And that's where it needs to take place. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there's still 
uh, so much of the old school mentality out there in regards to suck it up, buttercup, push on, you know, grab a little dirt on it and move on and you'll be fine. No, you won't be fine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is where this, um, this deadly mentality has got to stop. Mm-hmm. What can someone do? Perhaps they're, an, you know, fairly new, been on the, on the police force for a couple of years, been on, you know, running to fires for a couple of years. They're not in leadership and they see this is an important thing, but their department, their agency is not on board with it. What can they do to lead up? Well, man, uh, one is uh, put your oxygen mask on first, hmm. right? And uh, I remember, it was, I think it was a Southwest flight I was on one time. And, you know, they've always got comedians. Oh, yeah. The flight attendants. Great. <laughs> yeah, I remember the flight attendant saying something like, um, you know, uh, after you put your face mask on yourself, uh, if you're traveling with children, put it on your child with the most potential. <laughs> you know, I always thought that was funny. Anyways, um, but yeah, it's, it's that self-care aspect of recognizing, you know what, um, if my leadership is is not on board with this, what can I do? To one, take care of myself, and then also, how can I um, serve others within within my profession? What can I do to be an influencer within my department? Still being respectful of my leadership, sure. Um, but what can I do? One, to take care of myself, and two, how can I keep an eye out for my brothers and my sisters, um, um, you know, who are serving alongside of me? You know, that is so such an important point to to do the self care because if if I start if I see something that's not happening in my agency and, and I say we I mean I'm I'm not a first responder but if even even in, in in the work that I do you know working with this film going doing these interviews and I've worked hard at working to take care of me first mm-hmm. you know so I do have a daily ritual daily routine that I do to to just help keep my brain healthy and I find that for me, it's so important going into and perhaps like last week, I had a had a pretty serious interview with a retired firefighter who's been through some really dark things. And, you know, and even with his agency having challenges, you know, and so I had to mentally prepare myself for that, mm-hmm. you know, so that I stay healthy. And I think so much more for a first responder to really focus on taking care of oneself. So what's something that something practical that a individual can do if they want to start down this route, this road of, of taking care of oneself? Oh, that's a great question. Um, there's so many things. Uh, first one is um, looking at, at, you know, what are my routines? What am I doing that's actually helping me or, or not, not, or hurting me in just my choices that I'm making in my life? Um, you know, am I making, what do I tend to do under stress? What, what are the things that, um, I tend to go to without even thinking about, uh, from a self-awareness perspective. And so the first thing I would say is, is elevating the level of self-awareness. And this is one of the things we do in the presidency training is, um, because within the first responder professions in the military, I find that that's one of the biggest issues, um, is, uh, a, a lower degree of self-awareness. And so, being able to start paying attention to my thought processes, starting to pay attention to what my body's telling me um, and recognizing what stress feels like and recognizing the indicators and the warnings that, that I'm actually telling myself that I don't even realize. And that's the, the first step, I think, is, is to create that higher level of self-awareness. Now, that's not self-absorption. And as you pointed out before, taking care of ourselves is, is not being selfish 
or self-centered. It's actually enabling us to do our job better. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in a position where I'm at a five on the, you know, subjective units of, of stress, right? Uh, mm-hmm. if, if I'm on a five versus running at an eight or a nine or a 10, um, I'm in a much better position to be able to serve others if I'm in a healthy place. And so having that higher degree of self-awareness, and there's a lot of great material out there um, that you can read. There's um, a lot of uh, great opportunities, even if I would encourage everyone. Of course, I'm a mental health professional right now. Um, I went back to school and got trained in all of this stuff. And so, of course, I'm very pro, hey, get help. Um, mm-hmm. So being able to maybe see a, a professional therapist, a counselor, someone that can help you process and, and um, enrich your understanding of what it means to take care of myself and to create a high level of self-awareness. Second thing would be looking at other obvious areas that I can gain control over quickly. What's my workout routine like? How am I taking care of myself physically? Because there's so many studies that show, um, you know, that um, stress is reduced through physical exercise. Um, my eating routines, uh, my sleeping habits, what do these look like? My drinking habits, if I, if I drink alcohol, if I'm smoking cigarettes, you know, what's this doing for my health? So the practical areas that are the easy, low-hanging fruit parts of um, looking at this in a, in a greater picture of what can I do to help myself um, create a high level of self-awareness, look at the low-hanging fruit that I can easily change uh, within my habits, um, you know, sleep, nutrition, exercise and constantly asking myself this one question and i use this all of the time how's this helping me mm. how's this helping me if i can apply that to my thought processes i can apply that to my relationships i can apply that to the uh, my behaviors how's this helping me how's this helping others what am i doing to contribute to me being the best version of myself if i love my profession and what i'm doing how can I prepare myself to be the best agent, to be the best paramedic, to be the best fireman, to be the best police officer, to be the best, um, you know, soldier, whatever that might be. Um, what can I do to make myself a force multiplier within my profession? And, you know, that comes from, that doesn't require leadership above me to tell me what to do. That requires the motivation within myself to recognize that I can be the force multiplier and I can be the influencer on the battlefield or out on the street or, you know, in the uh, station. Mm-hmm. That's my responsibility. So I, I listened to a, a podcast and, and you're probably familiar also with, 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 with the Craig Rochelle leadership podcast. He says in his, his new book, he says, our lives, our life moves in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Mm. And thinking of, of all this, how does this, that, that, statement relate to taking care of oneself wow um that's powerful and very deep um you know it's interesting and i want to add to that um there's an old saying um it's been attributed to aristotle i believe i know the jesuits loved using it as well and this the the saying is give me a boy to the age of six and i'll give you the man that he'll become Mm. and the reason i bring that up um in relation to the quote you just gave which is an excellent one is to consider the way in which my background and my upbringing deeply influence mm. who I am now and the decisions and the choices that I make uh, for myself moving forward. And this is going back to that whole concept of self-awareness I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. that um, 
my ability to process a situation and a circumstance um, really uh, is, is filtered through my personality, my temperament, and also my previous experiences. And so these are the two bags in a way that we carry through life. Um, my, my temperament, my personality that's unique to me, and my previous experiences that are unique to me. And so that is going to determine. Um, now, this will happen on an unconscious level without me even being aware of how uh, uh, my previous experiences and my temperament influences my choices. Um, but if I can gain an understanding into what my tendencies are, how I tend to operate under stress, what my personality tends to do or, or interact or react, um, what my past experiences have been either in childhood or later in life, previous traumatic events, um, previous core wounds that have taken place that influence and impact how I tend to get triggered within my interactions in my daily life. If I can create a higher degree of awareness of these things within myself, it gives me so much more of an opportunity to have control over what happens to me when I experience a critical incident. And so this is why a critical incident is not necessarily a traumatic event. And that's why you've seen it. And I'm sure those that you've interviewed and you've seen within what you're doing, uh, we all have. We, we will see people go through identical events, crisis, identical, through identical issues, um, yet sometimes have very dramatic results in regards to how they process the incidents. And so a critical incident need not be a traumatic event for an individual. It becomes a traumatic event when I process that critical incident based upon, once again, my temperament, personality, and my previous experiences in life. That is going to determine how I process a critical incident. And so if I have insecurities within myself, if I have areas within who I am that I've not processed through previously and come to an understanding of or come to terms with or, or know why I do what I do, then when a critical incident happens, I'm much more likely to push into traumatic stress and triggers from previous experiences that are compounded throughout my life so that when that critical incident takes place, I feel a high degree and a high level of stress that becomes traumatic. That in turn will create a traumatic event from that critical incident. And without treatment and without uh, correct leadership and guidance and um, correct thought processes and actions, that will over time turn into post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so that's why post-traumatic stress disorder is 100% unnecessary. It's also 100% treatable. And I know you had on here a couple of weeks back uh, a colleague of mine who I love to death, uh, Mr. Dan Jervis, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, with uh, 22-0. Right. And, um, you know, if anyone's watching this podcast and you haven't seen that interview, you need to go back and go watch Go back that. and watch, yeah, for sure. Um, because what Dan's doing is, is phenomenal. And, in fact, we're working together and in incorporating uh, a program specifically uh, to work together with what I'm doing on the front end of, of traumatic events or the front end of critical incidences and then what Dan is doing on the back end with this incredible treatment where they're, they're literally experiencing 100% healing of PTSD. Mm. I mean, if I hadn't That's seen amazing. it with my own eyes, mm. I wouldn't have believed it. But mm. um, So it's incredible. But, yeah, that, that whole idea of recognizing that 
that my past experiences and my temperament and my personality dramatically influence how I process an incident, how I process the trauma uh, that, that is, is seen around uh, me within my professions. Mm-hmm. This self-awareness and self-evaluation really takes some honesty. You have to take an honest look at yourself and, and uh, sometimes that's a painful experience, right? I mean, how do you get, how do you get through that? How do you, when you look at, you know, when I really look at my past, how do I get through that stuff that is kind of, you know, hanging back there that's still affecting me today? Well, Conrad, it takes courage and, Mm -hmm. you know, courage is not um, an absence of fear. It's the recognition of controlling my fear within the fight and the fight for one's life for first responders is, is the, by far the biggest challenge first responders face than any critical incidences they experience. Being shot at is not fun. Mm. Um, But I can tell you um, that the way in which I process my internal stresses is far more of a killer and far more dangerous than being shot at statistically when you look at the numbers. Mm. I mean, heck, just just look at the numbers from the stats perspective of uh, the military, those that have been killed in action versus mm-hmm. those that have committed suicide uh, once home from combat. Mm. And, and we see there now, now in fairness, then there's other influencing factors there too, right? It's not just sure. what's happened in combat. But in reality, um, there's a huge influence there from their experiences. Um, that's far more of a killer. Look in law enforcement. Um Suicide, uh, the, st- the statistic on suicide versus uh, line of duty deaths is three times within law enforcement, the mm-hmm. amount of suicides versus line of duty deaths. So this stuff matters. It's, it's a, a major issue and it's far more of, of an area that needs to be addressed uh, than has been. And once again, that's why what you're doing is so important. That's why what uh, 220 is doing is so important and, um, you know, the work that I'm doing and other organizations like us out there, um, we, we've got to get this changed and, and it, it's, it needs to happen immediately. Mm-hmm. I know you're working with some law enforcement organizations there in your state. Tell us a little bit about your work that you're doing and the results that you're seeing. Awesome. Yeah. So um, the the, uh, tactical resilience program um, is relatively fresh. So um, we've had the privilege of being able to work with some outstanding agencies. Uh, We worked with um, the United States Marshal Service, um, did some training with them Uh, recently. I've started working with Tennessee Bureau of Investigation as well. Um, Their leadership there uh, is doing an outstanding job of uh, of, uh, treating you know, the issues that are faced with post-traumatic stress and their agents. Um, they're getting in on the front end, uh, starting to do some training um, with their special agents in their academy. Um, and um, also a few, a, few, a few of the agencies surrounding um, the areas where I'm based in Tennessee and Mississippi, um, we're seeing some dramatic results. Um, just about to get started on some work um, with some special operations teams as well. Um, which I'm really excited about. Um, they have uh, the highest level of suicide within the military at the moment. Wow. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's just from the high tempo of which they're having to be called upon. Um, and the, the level of critical incidences they're seeing is, is absurd. Um, and, of course, that's taking its result 
uh, or creating a result in a way which um, it's causing a lot of um, uh, operators and, and our special forces guys uh, to really suffer um, mm. because of honestly a, a lack of a lack of treatment and a lack of resources available to them. And so, um, you know, talking with some of the leadership there, just looking, hey, what do we need to do here uh, to change these numbers? Because you know, how how many is too many? Well, one mm-hmm. is too many mm-hmm. lives that are lost. And what can we do to change this? And so um, it's really neat, this, the program that we're pushing out here with Tactical Resilience of um, being able to help officers and help first responders and help military guys see that, hey, this isn't some, you know, go hug a tree, cry, cry on each other's shoulders, uh, hippie stuff, you know, um, that it's real, it's science-based, it's, it's factual, it's going to help them become a greater tactician um, a greater um, force multiplier within their profession, um, and and that's that's important stuff. Um, it's this isn't sissy work. It's not uh, it's not something to be afraid of. Mm-hmm. What have so let's let's kind of turn the camera on you and say, okay, how have you dealt with the stresses and the traumas of that you've experienced in your military career and your law enforcement and all that? Um, honestly. Uh, some of the things that we implement, uh, you know, uh, things that I've gone through within my own personal life and my own experiences. Um, I've been suicidal before. Um, you know, I've held a gun, uh, wanting to take my life. I know what that feels like. Um, and you know, one of the things that, that I learned through that experience, um, one that we teach is, you know, whenever you get to a position like that, you need to reach out. You, you need to, you need to reach out. You need to follow up with people, even uh, people you may not necessarily call best friends, but just reach out to say, Hey, can you, can you just contact me? Can you keep an eye on me? Cause right now I'm not doing well. Mm. Um, of having to lock up your firearms if that needs to be. In fact, <laughs> I had to give my keys to my, um, my safe room, um, which is quite, <laughs> got quite an arsenal in there. Arsenal in there. Um, from uh, previously, I've had to give give that key to another person to say, "Hey, can you take care of this? Because right now, I'm feeling strong, but all it's going to take is just one moment of me not feeling too good, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and and I, I I don't feel safe at the moment. Um, that takes courage, once mm-hmm. again, to be able to do that, uh, to be able to reach out. Um, and so, from a personal perspective um, of, of recognizing and seeing that, you know, for the trauma that I've gone through and experienced in my life. Um, creating the higher levels of self-awareness that we talked about before um, uh, is so important. Um, now, I, I will say too, the resources that are available now that, that were not available for me at the time, um, especially with what Dan Jervis with, um, uh, you know, um, 220 were doing, um, the, the trauma resiliency protocol um, that they've developed is literally life-changing and it, it's enabling someone who's experienced um, traumatic stress to be able to process through uh, their trauma and, and literally remove the emotional trauma from their brain and reposition it in a way so that the amygdala isn't constantly triggered and their prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. which is the logic and the reason portion of the brain is able to actually take over and 
create um, some stability within their within their mind that enables once again it, that will trickle down within to a physiological perspective but being able to see and recognize that there's treatments and op- options available now that even a few years ago we didn't have um, and that um, you know from a personal perspective means a lot to me and then also as a clinician it means a lot to me because I've I've lost guys mm-hmm. I've lost soldiers who've taken their life, who've been seeing me um, as a clinician. And that's your greatest fear as a clinician is, is to, to lose someone to suicide. Mm-hmm. And man, I wish, I wish I had the tools, even as a clinician of what I know now, I wish I knew then. Um, maybe the guys that I've lost uh, would still be here today if that was the case, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's, it's so personal for me from that perspective. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I love what 220 is doing. Um, that's why the, the tactical resilience is so important, um, is to create a high degree of awareness amongst our uh, first responders of, hey, you know what? You're not alone. One, two, there's help. Three, there's not just treatment available, but there's healing available for this stuff. And, um, and it's much more easily accessible than you think it is. Hmm. Well, thank you for being willing to share your personal story. I know I kind of kind of dumped that on you, uh, but I appreciate you sharing. If, if if someone wants to wants to recruit you or hire you to help train their agency, how can they reach out to you? What what what's the process there? Sure. Um, the easiest way is uh, either you can, you can go to the website tacpre.com, T-A-C-P-R-E.com, short for Tactical Resilience. Um, it's got all contact information there at the bottom there. Um, you can call, uh, email me at phil at alpha6international.com or you can call me, I'll give you my phone number, uh, 662-801-9497. And um, I'm available, man. Uh, this is what I'm passionate about. And man, I uh, if there's any way um, I could be of service or a partner with with any organization, uh, law enforcement, first responders, military guys, uh, at all. Then um, this is what I've, I've dedicated my time to now. And um, if I can serve, that's what I want to do. Well, Doc, it's been great having you on the program and sharing your insights and, and wisdom in on this subject. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for uh, taking care of not only others, but taking care of you. I think that's uh, that's a big first step for all of us to first take care of us. And I think that's kind of the, the resounding message of this talk today is we have to start in-house, in, in right? And if we're going to help others as well. So thank you for what you're doing and, and, and thank you for being on the program. Uh, likewise, Conrad, thanks for having me. And man, once again, thank you for what you're doing uh, with bringing awareness to PTSD and the things that we can do to, to help heal what's going on within our first responder community. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for watching and listening to the PTSD 911 Presents podcast. I really appreciate your participation. If you would subscribe to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our email list so you can keep up to date on what we're doing with the film and with this podcast show. We have some great additional interviews coming to you in the in the next few weeks and months. So please stay tuned as to who we're bringing on. And if you have someone that you would like to hear and see on this show, please send me an email and make an introduction. I'd really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you again next time on the PTSD 911 Presents podcast.